everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Mid-American Bandwagon Podcast. It is game week. I'm so excited that I'm stumbling over my words already. Episode 61 coming to you live this week. Zach Folador here, joined as always by Steve Helwick. Steve, we've been uh, we've been talking about it for uh, what a month or so now. We've been ready for games. We got a little taste this past Saturday. There were some interesting matchups, but we got a full slate this weekend. And um, I know you're excited. I'm excited. I'm sure everyone that's listening is excited. It's the best time of the year. Best time of the year. Yes, we already got a good glimpse of it on Saturday. It just felt good to have football back and fans in the in, in the stands of teams that they didn't get to see last year like Illinois and Nebraska had fans in the Big Ten game then we had UCLA there weren't too many fans there at the Rose Bowl but there there were some <laughs> still an improvement from last year and just getting the games weren't close they weren't great games but still it was just exciting to have the feeling of football coming back to campus and with as many games as we have this week we're certain to have some good ones Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe even Sunday and Monday. Absolutely. And anyone out there listening, just think to yourself, you know, if, if you're having a bad day this week, just think it could always be worse. You could be a Nebraska fan. That, that <laughs> is a program in a bad place right now, especially do you see what Scott Frost said yesterday? About yes. How, you know, half our game plan went out the window when we saw how they lined up. Like, how do you come out and say that publicly as a head coach? Uh, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe he said that. Well, I think another coach that might have said it this week would have been Bishop Sycamore's coach when he saw <laughs> how outmanned he was by that other. Oh my god! <laughs> that other this high school. A lot of great stories this week from what? the whatever is happening in Nebraska to what Bishop Sycamore, if it exists or not, which I don't think it does. And yeah. then we have today crazy news comes out of South Carolina this week is Zeb Nolan, their grad assistant is promoted to the starting quarterback position. He played for Iowa state as a backup to I think it was Brock Purdy a couple of years ago. So a lot of wild things happening across football right now. And we'll be sure to get off a few Bishop Sycamore jokes in this podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, that was, I, I saw that come across. I, I think I read that story the first time, I think it was yesterday or maybe I can't remember what day that came out, but it like, I, I've never seen anything like that two games in 48 hours. I mean, even hearing what the ESPN announcers were saying during the game against IMG Academy, what a, what a wild story. And I just, I can't believe ESPN didn't do a little bit more due diligence on that before putting that team on national television, but uh, Hey, that's either here nor there. Let's get right into it here, Steve. We got 12 Mac football games on the slate this weekend. Um, a couple games here on Thursday, one game on Friday, just one thing to note real quick, three of those four games, uh, Thursday and Friday, are MAC versus FCS schools. Uh, we've got some, you know, some, some games, they don't even have spreads available. The games that do have them available, they're massive. Western Illinois traveling to Ball State on Thursday night. Ball State, a 25-and-a-half-point favorite there. Wagner traveling up to Buffalo also on Thursday night. The Bulls, a 48-and-a-half-point favorite there on Bet MGM against the Wagner Seahawks. Eastern Michigan takes on the St. Francis, Pennsylvania Red Flashes on Friday. And then Toledo takes on Norfolk State on uh, on Saturday at 7 p.m. So we didn't want to bog you down with any with too much from uh, from those, those four matchups. We figure that... Uh, our four Mac teams there are going to be able to take care of business. Steve, we were just talking before the podcast started. It's been since 2017, since the Mac lost to an FCS team when uh, the, the Mike Jinks era 
Bowling Green Falcons lost to South Dakota 35-27 to at home. Sorry to bring that up for any Bowling Green fans listening here this evening. Steve, let's let's jump right into uh, our, our, our big matchups here uh, starting on uh, – we'll start on Thursday night. Speaking of the Bowling Green Falcons, they traveled down to Knoxville to take on the Tennessee Volunteers. Game one of the Josh Heupel era for, uh, for Tennessee. Former Michigan quarterback Joe Mixon named their starter at quarterback – the Volunteers, a 35-and-a-half-point favorite in this game against Bowling Green. That's a lot of points here, Steve, but I got to be honest. I, I look at the, the, the talent disparity here between those two teams. I, I don't see a lot of success or a, a lot of positives coming out of this one for the Falcons. How, how do you break this one down? Yes, the 35-point spread seems reasonable since Bowling Green lost four of its five games by 35 or more points last year, and the only time they covered that spread would have been against Akron where they lost by 28 points to a team on a 21 game losing streak. <laughs> so not too many things are looking good for Bowling Green. Now this is a great game for Tennessee because Tennessee started off pretty well last year with a two and zero start uh, beating South Carolina and Mizzou. And then the offense just went dormant for the rest of the year with Jarrett Guarantano quarterback. They weren't really able to establish a passing game there and Tennessee was just plagued by turnovers all season, and it was the end of Jeremy Pruitt's tenure. Now the Volunteers bring in Josh Heupel, who had mixed reviews from the UCF fan base. While he had a New Year's Six Bowl in his first season on campus, a lot of that may have been some Scott Frost's talent and players that he had, and he declined each year with UCF finishing 6-4 and four last year with a really talented roster. But he's a very good offensive mind, and I really like the offense that he ran at UCF the past couple of years. And I think if he can implement something that up-tempo at Tennessee, it would rival what Ole Miss has right now in the SEC. I think that Tennessee could get some, some good looks going on offense. And they're bringing in that new quarterback, Joe Milton. Milton, he, he struggled a bit last year, to say, at Michigan. Four touchdowns, four interceptions. Uh, some of those later three games that he played in against Wisconsin and Rutgers, uh, he never really looked on point. I think the change of scenery might be helpful to him, but I said, this is going to be a good game for Tennessee just because Bowling Green's defense was atrocious last year. And I think this is a way for the volunteers to generate some offense and win a nice opener in Neyland. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I don't see Bowling Green having, much success. I also have to correct. Thank you. I have to correct myself. I realize now I said Joe Mixon is the starting quarterback for Tennessee. Uh, I believe he is going to be uh, lining up for, for the Cincinnati Bengals in a few weeks. So my my apologies there. Thank you for correcting me on that one, Steve. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, again, we look at this Bowling Green team, 310 rush yards a game last year that they gave up. We got, um, you know, uh, Tyon Evans at, at running back for, for uh, Tennessee and a lot of returning talent there. I shouldn't say a lot of returning talent. They do have some returning talent on the offense. I think this offensive line, I think the talent disparity, especially in the trenches here, is going to be what determines this game. I don't see the Bowling Green offensive line really having any success stopping the, the Tennessee front seven from getting to Matt McDonald. I also don't see the D Bowling Green defensive line having any success against that Tennessee offensive front. 
I, I do think as, as much as I would love to say that I could see Bowling Green walking in to uh, walking into, you know, to Tennessee there in the Nayland stadium and, and, you know, putting up a fight. I just, I don't see it happening. I guess the question becomes then Steve, if you're a Bowling Green fan, you look at this game against Tennessee, these first couple games of the season in general. I mean, what, what are, I, I guess I'm trying to figure out what are some positive signs that we can look for. I mean, Terry on Stewart was had some moments last year at running back. If you're a Bowling Green fan, you're not expecting to win this game. You're probably not expecting to win. We maybe some are expecting to win that South Alabama game next week, but what, I mean, what are we looking for here from Bowling Green? What would in your mind show us progress for the Falcons here in these first couple weeks of the season? Well, I'd like to compare them to another program that was in their shoes not too long ago, and that would be Kent State. And I remember game one of the Sean Lewis era that Kent State just came out looking different in uh, Sean Lewis's first game against Illinois. They had a halftime lead. It felt like they were being more aggressive. They were taking deeper shots. They didn't play like they were scared. They didn't play like they were an underdog in that game. While Kent State lost that game, you could tell after one game that there were signs of progress in place. And later that Kent State team that season, had Penn State, uh, I think, within three points in the second quarter. Yeah. Uh, and they had Ole Miss within seven points in the third quarter. So they had a kind of a difficult non-conference schedule, and they managed it well, and they played really without fear and played aggressive. And I kind of want to see Bowling Green have more assertiveness, especially in their passing game, uh, which really struggled last season. So I, I, I want to see Matt McDonald kind of take a leap, have more confidence in his throws this year. And I'd like to see Bowling Green do higher risk, high reward play calls because you're not going to beat Tennessee as 35 point underdogs just with, I don't know, if just trying to run up the middle for three yards every time. So I kind of want to see Bowling Green open up the playbook in this one on offense and defensively. I'd also like to see some aggression there see what you can do against their offensive line. See if you can pressure Joe Milton uh, Milton last year, I mean, I remember Indiana put a lot of pressure on him. He had two picks, got sacked uh, three times in that game. So if you're Bowling Green, I think this all starts with aggressive play calling and you want to see you want to see your coaching staff commit to the to trying to win the game. Yeah, I, I agree with that there. So again, Bowling Green, a 35 point underdog in this game. And if I'm being honest, I, I still don't know if, if that's quite enough, though. That is a lot of points. Uh, so good luck to the, uh, the, the Falcons going down to, to Knoxville to take on the Volunteers. The last time these two teams met, it was actually a great game, the beginning of the last year of the Dino Babers area where, era where they played uh, a neutral site game down in Nashville. Matt Johnson at quarterback, uh, Garrick Dieter at wide receiver for the Falcons. That was actually a great game, unfortunately, for Falcons fans. Uh, not quite the high caliber offense uh, that they have this year that can match that 2015 Bowling Green squad. Let's move on to our Saturday games here, Steve. This first game at noon on Saturday, one of the more intriguing matchups of the weekend for me in the MAC, the Western Michigan Broncos traveling across the state to Ann Arbor to take on the Wolverines, uh, led by Jim Harbaugh in his seventh season. The Broncos currently a 17-point underdog in this game, the total set at 68. And, and Steve, I got to be honest, I mean, talent-wise, I think – Michigan is certainly better than Western Michigan as a Big Ten team almost always is going to be against a MAC team. But when we look at the Wolverines, this is a team with with a lot of question marks. I mean, this is a uh, you know a team known a program known for stout defense. That was not the case last year, 
the uh, the the uh, the the Wolverines really struggled, and and Don Brown, their old you know stalwart of defensive coordinator, let go uh, in the off season. I mean, Michigan last year on defense, not, not good at all. 34 and a half points a game last in the big 10. I'm sorry, next to last in the big 10, 434 yards per game, which was 12th in the big 10. So they let longtime defensive coordinator, Don Brown go and in comes uh, new defensive quarter coordinator, Mike McDonald. Now I thought this was really interesting, Steve. I didn't realize any of this until I, I was researching this over the last few days, Mike McDonald, not only has he never been a college football coach, but he's also never been a defensive coordinator. He spent the last four years as a member of the Baltimore Ravens staff as a, as a linebackers coach and a defensive backs coach. You go back just four years or five years to 2016, he was a defensive quality control assistant for the Ravens. So a lot of really interesting things happening at Michigan right now. Cade McNamara got some playing time last year. He comes back at the, at the, uh, to, you know, as the starting quarterback. Obviously, Western Michigan has a lot of firepower here on offense. Initially, at the beginning of the week, I was thinking I was going to pick the Broncos to win this game. I've backed off of that a little bit just because of the, the talent disparity. And obviously, you're going up against a Big Ten, you know, quality program. But I still think this is going to be a much closer game than a lot of people might anticipate. It could be. Michigan's going to be under a lot of scrutiny, especially Jim Harbaugh, because it seems like a make or break year for him because Michigan struggled in the pandemic season last year, as did a lot of Big Ten East teams. But I thought uh, I thought putting McNamara at quarterback is interesting. He did play pretty well last year, especially in that that thrilling shootout against Rutgers, which was a really entertaining game. One, two, I think two or three overtimes. Yeah. And he, he didn't throw a pick last year. He looked to be an upgrade over Joe Milton, who we just talked about went to Tennessee. I, I said he, he played really well in that Rutgers game, but I don't think he showed that same firepower against Penn state's defense next week and Michigan's offense really outside of that Rutgers game, Michigan's offense was a struggle all year long. The one thing I do like that they have is their offensive line's pretty good. Andrew Stuber, right guard, is a name to watch there. So I think that Michigan should be able to protect against Western Michigan's pass rush led by Ali Fayad in this one. Uh, but on the defensive side, Michigan really needs to generate more of a pass rush and create havoc. I understand some of that was a product of their star defensive end, Aiden Hutchinson missing some time last year, but Michigan never really got to quarterbacks last year. So I think that if Caleb Ellaby is given ample time, he's going to be able to create some something for this Western Michigan offense. So I think that aspect of the game is why Western Michigan can keep this within two touchdowns. I do think that the Wolverines probably win this one still, but I think Western Michigan will remain close in the first half at least, and it'll be enough of a scare where Michigan fans might be concerned. Yeah. I got to say, when you were talking about Cade McNamara there, I think you might have been the first person ever to utter the sentence, a thrilling shootout against Rutgers. It was. Uh, it, no, it was. I agree 100%. It's just not, that's not the brand of football we're used to with the Scarlet Knights here, although maybe things are changing a little bit uh, under Greg Schiano. I But I'm with you, though, man. I, I think, you know, the, the, the concern here for me – I agree with you. The, the, the offensive line for Michigan, I think it's going to be tough for Western Michigan to get pressure on McNamara. And even, you know, you look at, um, you know, Michigan's returning running back, Hassan Haskins, who was their leading rusher last year. I, I feel like he's going to have a big game uh, on, on Saturday. And, you know, Western Michigan, there, there were some struggles on defense last year. They had some ups and downs. They had, you know, their, 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 
They gave up some big pass plays. They're susceptible to the, you know, long pass plays. I'm not sure that Cade McNamara is going to stretch the defense downfield, but I do feel like this is a situation where Michigan's going to be able to grind out long drives and, you know, chunk yards, five yards here, six yards here, seven year, yards here on the ground. I do think though that there's enough, uh, there's enough question marks for me on, on the defensive side of the ball for Michigan where I do feel like this veteran offensive line for the Broncos is going to be able to keep Caleb Ellaby upright and is going to be able to open up running lanes for Ladarius Jefferson. I wouldn't be surprised to see Western Michigan get up, you know, you know, 21, 24, 28 points, somewhere in that range in this game. Again, I'm not saying that I think the Broncos are going to beat the uh, beat the Wolverines, but I, I do feel like um, this is a game that is going to be closer than a lot of Wolverine fans might anticipate and I'm going to be curious to see what Caleb Ellaby and this this offense looks like obviously replacing Dwayne Eskridge is not an easy task but you got Sky Moore coming back and uh, Jalen Hall as well obviously I mentioned Ladarius Jefferson in the backfield but I do think though that this is going to be a, a, a one of the better Mac games of the weekend I'm, I'm really looking forward to this one I think Western Michigan fans have had this one circled for for quite some time um Let's let's take a look. Uh, another game here Saturday afternoon. Another long-standing rivalry, probably one of the most underappreciated rivalries in all of college football. Miami uh, travels to down the road to Cincinnati to take on the Cincinnati Bearcats, ranked number eight in the country in the Battle of the Victory Bell. Steve, the uh, the Bearcats have won fourteen straight in this one. What do the Redhawks have to do here to to get off the uh, get you know break that losing streak and get back in the win column? They really have to apply a lot of pressure on Cincinnati because last year Cincinnati's offense fell flat in that Peach Bowl against Georgia when Georgia had eight sacks on them. And those sacks were a result of Cincinnati losing their star left tackle, James Hudson, in the game. And now James Hudson's in the NFL. So Cincinnati really has to work on shoring up that offensive line without Hudson in the lineup and make sure they'll have another game giving up eight sacks or something. But Miami is as good as a pass rush in the MAC. They led the FBS in sacks last year with 4.3. I understand sample size was small, but they were, I think, around top 20 in sacks in 2019, averaging just under three per game. There's a lot of talented guys that can pass rush on this team. You have Ivan Pace, who once had six sacks in a game, NCAA record. You have Cameron Butler, who's been a longtime defensive end, good pass rusher there. Dominique Robinson, who transferred from wide receiver over to defensive end, and that's worked out with him. There's so many guys on this team that can get to the quarterback, and I think if Cincinnati doesn't have all five linemen on the same page, there could be a weak link in each time. So I'd say that would be the main matchup to watch in this game if Miami wants to win. And one other matchup I'm really intrigued in watching is I really like the Red Hawks receiving group this year. Jack Sorensen is a lot of that production made up about 50% last year, but I think that there's other good names in here with uh, Jalen Walker. He didn't get as many catches as he did in 2019 last year, as many targets, but I think he's a solid name. I, I think James Burns, formerly James May is fantastic. Averaged over 25 yards a catch on 20 receptions in 2019. So he's the guy that, Brett Gabbert, who I think Brett Gabbert has the best deep ball in the Mac, that Gabbert's going to connect down deep. And then Mac Hippenhammer, who's a reliable, uh, more shorter threat target that they got from Penn State in the transfer portal. When you have those guys going up against a secondary that I'd say is top five in the country with Ahmad Gardner, an All-American cornerback, that's going to create 
a something's got to give. I mean, either Miami's receiving production is finally going to go down or Cincinnati's finally going to let something go through the air. So if Miami can somehow gain an upper hand, I don't know if they will, but if they somehow can gain an upper hand on Cincy's corners, that would be the recipe for an upset in this one. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great point. And, and that's the matchup I'm really looking at. Like the, the, the Cincinnati secondary is so good. I mean, you, you mentioned Amal Garner, you got Kobe Bryant back there, Arquan Bush. I mean, this entire defense was great last year for the Bearcats, legitimately great. I mean, top 10 uh, in yards allowed per game, you know, in the rushing uh, department. And, you know, that front seven, they got all kinds of guys who are you're probably going to get drafted here over the next few years. So that's, I think to me, that's what concerns me about this game. If I'm a Red Hawks fan is that there's so much talent on this defense for Cincinnati. And then on the offensive line for the Red Hawks, you're losing Tommy Doyle. You're losing Danny Godlevsky. I mean, that offensive line for Miami to me is a big question mark. And I feel like going up against a defense like this in week one is not a great way to start the season. If you're a Red Hawks fan, given those question marks. But the thing is, you're right. The, the talent at the skill positions for the Red Hawks is great. And if they can get the ball out of uh, Gabbert's hands quickly and into Jack Sorensen's hands, into Mac Hippenhammer's hands, Andrew Homer as well, the Red Hawks, I mean, they certainly have some firepower. And it, it just comes back to, again to what we were talking about a few weeks ago. It seems like everybody is kind of overlooking Miami right mm -hmm. now, which is which is quite, a, quite uh, intriguing to me. I mean, this is a team that was you know, won the Mac championship two years ago in our last full season. So I know Miami fans really want to win this game, not only because Cincinnati has won 14 straight, but because that 14 game winning streak has brought them back almost even in this series. And if uh, the, the Bearcats win this one, it is going to get uh, tied up. It'll be 59, 59 and seven all time for both teams. What do you think here? I mean, do you, do you give the Red Hawks a legitimate chance here? Do the, do the Bearcats have too much firepower for you? Cincinnati started slow offensively in its first two games against FBS opponents last year. Army, they only beat 24 to 10. And then South Florida, they didn't even break 30 points on the Bulls. And the Bulls had a kind of an atrocious defense last year. So I think Cincinnati might start a little slow offensively, especially without Jared Dokes, who produced a lot in the running game for them last year. They also lost uh, Jay Sean Jackson, one of their receivers to Ball State in the transfer portal. So Replacing a couple names there, and Desmond Ritter needs to be a little more consistent for me to trust Cincinnati's offense more. There's times where he's fantastic, like him as a runner against SMU last year. He had almost 200 rushing yards in that game. He took over that game. Then as a pastor, he did it against UCF and ECU late in the year. But sometimes we see performances where Ritter just doesn't have it as much like he did against Georgia or in those first two games I mentioned. So there's a lot of variables in Cincinnati's offense. But I think it does come down to Miami's offensive line doesn't have a guy with more than 10 starts on the, on the roster. Their depth chart has 31 combined starts. And then Cincinnati's defensive front has guys like Majay Sanders who are treading into All-American territory, possible NFL stars of the future. Cincinnati's defense will be too much to overcome, but I still think Miami can pile on some points. I think it'll be a similar result to what we saw in 2019. My preview, I, I might have been a little generous with Miami's points here. I said 37 to 24. I, I think I think that's a fair score. That would be Miami would be covering the spread in that one. Yeah. 
which was is 23 points. But this is the most talented in terms of where both teams are. I think this is as good of a victory bell matchup as we've ever had. It's rare that we've had both teams on solid footing entering. I was going to, I was going to say it's, it's, it's rare to me that both of these programs are, are, are so good at the same time, especially Cincinnati is such an interesting program to me. They have these very high highs and then these very low lows and Luke Fickle seems to have uh, stabilized them a little bit here over the last few years. So um, certainly an interesting one there in, in Southeast Ohio, that one kicks at three 30 on Saturday, as Steve mentioned, Cincinnati, a 23 point favorite in that one with the total being 51 and a half. Let's move West a little bit here, Steve, to, uh, to Columbia, Missouri, Greg McElwain and the Chippewas head down to visit the Tigers uh, at Memorial stadium there in, um, in Columbia, Missouri, a 14 point favorite in this game total of 60 and a half. This game starts Saturday at 4 PM. Uh, Coach McElwain has said that central Michigan will play two quarterbacks in this game. So presumably, you know, Daniel Richardson last year's starter is going to get some time along with former four-star recruit and Washington transfer Jacob Sermon on the other side of the ball for the Tigers. We got Missouri cornerback uh, Connor Bezalak, who I know you've mentioned briefly on the show before. We feel like he might be a breakout star this year. Almost 2,400 passing yards last season, 67% completion, seven touchdowns, six interceptions. And then obviously also Kobe Lewis, it was announced he's out for the season uh, with a non-contact knee injury. They announced that a few weeks ago. So there's going to have to be some other guys that step up for the Chippewas. How do you feel about this matchup, Steve? I'm, I'm interested to see how the quarterbacks look for Central Michigan. Yes, I, I saw that they listed three potential starting quarterbacks on their depth chart. They had the double or there. <laughs> so I thought that was a very interesting way of framing it. I think they'll probably go with Daniel Richardson as the quarterback number one as he started against Ohio last year in that win in the opener. This game, I think the spread's a little generous in favor of Central Michigan because I think this Missouri team this year is – they're going to be pretty good. I can see this Missouri team getting second in the SEC East with Florida taking a step back this season. I've, I've, I mentioned Bazelak as somebody who I saw last year as a freshman, and he, he makes a lot of good throws as a quarterback, and I think he has the tools to bring Missouri uh, back to where it was in its early days in the SEC. I think they have a really good running game with uh, Tyler Beatty returning average five yards a carry last year, had some good runs in that LSU game where the offense really broke out. And defensively, this team probably had one of the biggest off seasons in the transfer portal. They lost star outside linebacker, Nick Bolton, but replaced him with blaze Aldridge from rice, who was an all CUSA selection. And Aldridge is just a tremendous tackles for loss guy finished among the nation's best there. And then they got both of Tulsa's cornerbacks, Allie Green and a Caleb Evans. And if you remember Tulsa's defense last year, they were a force. Even Oklahoma State, who is known for an explosive offense, Oklahoma State couldn't even throw on those cornerbacks for most of the game. So I think Missouri's defense really beefs up there. And when Central Michigan's having to counter them without Kobe Lewis, I know Lou Nichols is a solid running back, but I think Lewis was a huge part of that offense the past couple seasons, and I think that Central Michigan is going to miss him greatly. You still have a good wide receiving core on campus with Khalil Pimpleton and Ja'Cory Sullivan, two guys that were all max selections a few years ago. But I don't, I don't know if I trust Central Michigan's offense to match Missouri toe-to-toe, and especially going up against these, these former Tulsa cornerbacks. 
I don't think this game's going to benefit Central Michigan. And I, I still think that the spread's a little generous in their favor. If there's one thing I do like Central Michigan has, it's their linebacking core. Uh, I know Troy Brown and George Douglas really bring a lot to the run-stopping game. And I know Troy Hairston's a really good piece on the defensive line, but I still think that Missouri has too much for Central Michigan to overcome in this game. And I could see, I could see this being pretty lopsided. Yeah, I'm the thing that concerns me if I'm a Chippewas fan here is is the secondary. Um, hmm. you know, the the CMU last year, last in the Mac in pass defense, gave up 297 yards a game. You mentioned, you know, Connor Bezalek, some of the some of his you know, flashes of, of, uh, of greatness last year. I really do feel like him and the receiver receiving core for the Tigers could have a field day here against the Chippewas. I really do. And I agree with you that my initial, you know, when I looked at this spread initially, I felt like it was a little bit low. I was surprised it wasn't closer to 20. And I just, I, I again, I don't see central Michigan's defense being able to stop this, this Missouri, you know, I don't know if you want to call it high powered or not, but I mean, this is a team that you know, they average over 400 yards a game last year in the sec. And uh, you know, obviously that's a little bit of a step up in competition from the Mac. I do think, um, you know, the, the offense, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. It's going to be a struggle for them as well. I do feel like this is an, a situation where sec, uh, I'm sorry, Missouri does seem to be a team on the rise. Not that Central Michigan isn't going to have a good year or isn't capable of having a good year, but it does feel like the talent disparity here is a little bit larger than it is in some of these other games that, that we have discussed. Um, so I, I, I agree with you there, Steve. I, I could see you know, Missouri winning this one by, you know, by three touchdowns or so. I'll be curious, though, to see what how they break down the reps at quarterback for, uh, for, for the Chippewas. I, as you said, I agree with you. I think Daniel Richardson, I, I would expect to see him under center to start the game. We'll see how, how long of a leash he has and how they rotate those guys in and out. Obviously for, uh, you know, for central Michigan though, um, not never an easy way to start the year going down into sec territory. Hopefully though, I, you know, I think we'll learn a little bit more about them uh, this, uh, this week. And then they get a, uh, a brief respite next week, taking on Robert Morris at home before I'm going back into SEC territory and taking on LSU down in Baton Rouge in week three. So going to learn a lot about the, uh, the Chippewas here over the next three weeks. Moving on, here's another interesting one for me, Steve. I wouldn't have said this was interesting a couple of days ago, but we got Akron traveling down to Auburn on Saturday night, Akron, a 37 and a half point underdog in this game. The big news here though, for zips fans just came out, you know, it was announced yesterday in, uh, in uh, coach Tom R's press conference, uh, last year's star running back Tion dollar is off the team, no longer on the roster, no longer a part of the zips program. He had some legal troubles earlier this off season, missed spring practice, but I don't think anyone saw this coming, even regardless of that, Steve. Yes. And now I wonder where, Akron, who had one of the worst offenses the last two seasons, can generate anything. They do have Michigan State transfer Anthony Williams Jr. getting into that running back slot now, and they're really they're really pressed for running back talent now on the team. I uh, Williams had some playing time in the 2019 season, getting 118 yards and a single rushing score. But when you look past him on the roster, there's not too many experienced guys, especially with Jeremiah Knight leaving the program. If he, I want to be honest, I don't usually predict shutouts. I do not think Akron scores on Saturday. Yeah. This team, uh, I think Cato Nelson can be a good quarterback, but he hasn't had too much offensive line to protect him over the years. And then you have 
uh, youthful offensive line here with four redshirt freshman starters. It's I think things can get pretty ugly in this one. And we saw what Auburn did to LSU last year Mm -hmm. uh, with their defense, a 48 to 11 win. I I would not be shocked if Auburn just put together a shutout here in their first game of the Brian Harson era. I know Auburn kind of been a rough offseason. I know Harson's taken a lot of heat from uh, some of the local media there, but I think that Auburn will get everything on the right footing when this game kicks off. And if I'm Akron, I start with an onside kick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I do that again, just like they did last year. Why not? Yeah, it's, that's, I, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that, uh, you know, this, this to me, Akron, I don't know. I feel like any hope they had on offense or most of the hope they had on offense rested on Tion Dollar. I mean, this was a guy, 112 carries, 666 yards last year, six yards per carry, six touchdowns as well. I mean, there were, there were times where he was the offense for, for the zips. Now, if you read, if you hear, listen to what coach Tom Arth has been saying over the last couple months for the zips, he has really hyped up not only Michigan state transfer Anthony Williams at running back, but also uh, true freshman John Zell Norris, who apparently had a great spring for, for the zips. So, We'll see how they mix those backs in. But again, you look at the offensive line being so young. Uh, you look at, you know, Cato Nelson playing his first game in, in over, you know, in two years. I don't see how Akron keeps up with, with, uh, with the Tigers in this game. Obviously, a new coaching staff, a new system. But if you're, you know, if you're Auburn, you still have Bo Nix under center. You still have uh, Tank Bigsby at running back, who I know he was a little bit up and down last year. But I don't think that the, the Zips are going to have any answer for the the Tigers on Saturday night, and I'm with you. I would not be surprised to see a uh, to see a, a shutout here in this game. Unfortunately, not a great way to start the year for the Zips. They got Temple next week, so I don't know. Maybe maybe they can uh, bounce back uh, and, and surprise some people against Temple because uh, the Owls also, as we've talked about on this podcast, not in the greatest spot as a, as a program either. But yeah, I'm with you. I could see uh, I could see this one getting ugly fast. And, um, you know, we're going to see how Auburn uh, or I'm sorry, how Akron's able to bounce back from it moving forward. Uh, next to last game, I want to I'm sorry, we got three games left here. This next one is another one that's very interesting to me here, Steve. We got Syracuse traveling to Ohio, the Bobcats getting the uh, the orange at home in Athens in game one of the Tim Albin era. Steve, the the you know, the orange have they have a lot of question marks right now. Dino Babers. Uh, seat is a little bit hot after going one and 10 last year, got uh, Tommy DeVito back at, at starting quarterback. There's some questions on, on offensive, on the offensive line. There's some questions on the defense. This one here, the closest spread of any of these uh, games against power five teams, the Bobcats only a two point underdog at home against the orange. What do you think about this one? Did the Bobcats have a legitimate chance to, to pull this one off? Oh, I guess that line moved because Ohio is favored about a week ago. Yes, it has. It's moved around a little bit. It was, I saw Ohio went to plus one the other day. It was plus two this morning when I looked at it. Yes. We've mentioned before on this podcast, I don't know too much about the Ohio Bobcats because they seem like they're a far cry from that 2019 team in terms of who's on the roster. And they hardly played last year. We only saw three sample points from them. And one of them was against Akron and another one was against Bowling Green. Yeah. So Ohio didn't really have too many sample points that we were able to take away and really assess how good this team is going into 2021. 
Curtis Rourke's going to be the quarterback, the brother of a famous legend on Ohio's campus, Nathan Rourke. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think Curtis can provide a lot of good things in the passing game last year. He looked pretty decent in his first year as a starter with almost 400 yards on 44 attempts, averaging over, uh, averaging almost nine yards per attempt without an interception. Armani Rogers can also be a good plug and play quarterback and sets where Ohio wants to run more as he displays a good sense of mobility as a UNLV transfer. I do like what Ohio has in the backfield, though. Demontre Tuggle, O'Shawn Allison, and Julian Ross. That is a lot of experienced veteran talent in the backfield. I think they'll have the edge in the rushing game over Syracuse. As much as I want to pick Syracuse in this game, which I think I probably still will, the more I just analyze it, the more I do like about what Ohio has compared to Syracuse. But yeah, I, I, do I, I don't disagree. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Stephen. I think the, the matchup that I really like here for the Bobcats is in the run game, right? You mentioned Demontre Tuggle and O'Shawn Allison, two great running backs. Demontre Tuggle, 7.6 yards per carry last year on 53, uh, 53 carries. Uh, a veteran offensive line, four starters returning, and they add in a couple of uh, power five transfers. If you look at the other side of the ball, Syracuse, Next to last in the ACC last year in rush defense, gave up 209 rushing yards per game and over five yards per carry. So there is a weakness here that I think plays right into the, the strength of the Bobcats offense, which is running the football. I think Curtis Rourke and Armani Rogers, both kind of, you know, dual threat guys, obviously Armani Rogers a little bit more so uh, running the ball than passing the ball. But I think those two combined along with Demontre Tuggle and O'Shawn Allison, I feel like that pounding pound and ground game is going to be the recipe for success here. If the Bobcats want to pull this game off, I could see this one being more of like a low scoring game. I know Syracuse and Dino Babers that air raid offense, they're kind of known for shootouts, but I, I don't see, um, I don't know. I just, I feel like Ohio is going to have a lot of those long bleed the clock drives in this game where they're getting six yards a pop, seven yards a pop. I do feel like, you know, it's not often that, that I would say confidently that I think a Mac team is going to beat a power five team. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm super confident about this, but this is the one I would pick this weekend. I do think Ohio has a very, very real shot to win this game. The only reason I hesitate is because exactly what you said at the start uh, you know, of your analysis, which is we really don't know a lot about the Bobcats. You got a new head coach coming in. We only got to see him play three games last year, not a ton. So there's a lot of question marks here for Ohio. Um, but there's a lot of question marks for Syracuse as well. It's going to be interesting to see, uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the Orange coaching staff looking for a bounce back year this year. I think they're, they're really hoping to get back to a bowl game in, uh, in upstate New York. They seem to have all the momentum in the world back after that 2018 season, and it's all kind of fallen apart since then for the Orange. So this one, uh, one of the, the, again, it is the closest spread we have here in these week one matchups. Ohio, a two-point underdog. The uh, total a, at set at 56. That game kicks at 7 p.m. on Saturday. Heading down south uh, to uh, the Peach State, the uh, Northern Illinois travels down to Atlanta to take on Georgia Tech Saturday night at 730. 
there in Atlanta. Uh, Georgia Tech currently an 18-point favorite in this game, over under 58 in this one. Georgia Tech, a very uh, very veteran, experienced team. I shouldn't say veteran, very experienced team, though. I mean, they return 83% of their production from last year, 13th in the country. Included there is, is uh, last year's starting quarterback, Jeff Sims, who, as a freshman, had some great moments, but was very up and down. Also, they have two good running backs there uh, for the Ramblin' Wreck with Jameer Gibbs and Jordan Mason. Uh, so certainly, you know, year three under Jeff Collins there in Atlanta, the Georgia Tech is making some progress year two or I'm sorry, year three for Thomas Hammock as well in uh, in DeKalb. They they travel down uh, to Atlanta with new starting quarterback Rocky Lombardi, got Harrison Whaley in the backfield, Tyrese Ritchie on the outside. What do you think about this one here, Steve? It still feels like this is a game that. Um, I don't know. I think Northern Illinois still may be a little bit too young to pull this one off, but I do feel like the Huskies are on the right track and, you know, maybe they hang with Georgia tech here for, for a quarter or two. Yes. This one has all the makings of an under for me in terms of where the score is headed. I know Georgia tech, they did have one random explosion against Louisville last year on a Friday night where they put up 46 points, but a lot of their games, they were putting up 20 or fewer points and Northern Illinois games have, have typically been slugfests. I mean, a couple of years ago, they beat BYU at like seven to six or something like that. Yeah. And I think that they still kind of have that low scoring style uh, capable, even though their defense isn't as good as they were in the late 2010s. Georgia Tech does have good running game with Jameer Gibbs, though. And I think Jeff Sims is also another guy who can run the football really well and actually led the team in rushing last year from the quarterback position. So I think this game's going to be a lot of running on both ends. NIU has Harrison Whaley, who kind of had a breakout season last year, led the team in rushing. And NIU's, NIU's never really been a good passing team. They've mainly kept things on the ground, and that's been their identity ever since, ever since like Jerry Kill was there. So... I think this is going to be a quick game in terms of how long it lasts. I think there's just going to be a lot of running and I think there's going to be a good amount of punting, but I think Georgia tech wins this by about two touchdowns. I'd say. I agree with you. I, I can't disagree with anything you said. I, I you know, I think Northern Illinois, um, a lot of, especially in their back seven and their linebacking core and their defensive backfield. I mean, you got four of your top five linebackers back. You got all of your defensive backs back from last year. I, I do feel like Northern Illinois is going to be able to, to, to slow down the, uh, the, the Yellow Jackets uh, offense considerably, partly because I think Georgia Tech is still, you know, Jeff Collins in his third year, it takes a long time to transition your, your, uh, your personnel from that triple option attack to more of a traditional offense. And they're still going through that. And so I, th I still think they're, they're the offensive firepower for the Yellow Jacket, a little bit lacking. I am looking forward. I'm really looking forward to see what the Huskies offense looks like here. Really curious to see uh, Rocky Lombardi under center. Really want to see what Harrison Whaley looks like uh, in the backfield as well after having a nice freshman campaign last year. And obviously we got Tyrese Ritchie and Trayvon, Ru Trayvon Rudolph on the outside. So there's some sneaky good skill position players, uh, some skill position talent for the Huskies. So uh, th definitely another curious matchup here Saturday night in, uh, in Atlanta. Last game we have here on the docket this week, Steve, the most intriguing of the weekend to me, definitely. I know you will be there in person, uh, which I'm very jealous. We got the Kent State Golden Flashes traveling down to College Station to take on the Aggies. 
uh, it's going to be an electric atmosphere in that stadium. As I, as, as you know, we've talked about on this, uh, on this podcast, have you, have you been to a game at college station before? Or is this your first one? No, I've been to many. I ha- my brother actually attended Texas A&M and I've been to okay. a number over the years. And I was at the 2016 game against Tennessee. Anyone who's unfamiliar with it, watch the highlights on YouTube. Greatest college football game I've ever been to. Had college game day that day also. They were both top 10 teams in the country. It was a double overtime decision. Armani Watts securing the game-winning interception for the Aggies to win. Trevor Knight with a really long rushing touchdown late in the game, battling out with Josh Dobbs. Just a tremendous game. And when it comes to college football environments, I don't think you can name five better than what Texas A&M has to offer. I know a lot of people in Texas will say that that program is kind of like a cult, but that is a loyal (laughs) fan base. They are rooted in tradition. And I think that they provide one of the best game day atmospheres in college football. And just an interesting fact about Texas A&M, for people that might not be familiar with the university, they have a tradition called Midnight Yell. And at midnight, the night before every game day, they bring about usually about like 50,000, 60,000 people into the stands at midnight to practice these yells, which are are like these chants that they do. And they also like tell these old fashioned, like military style tales about uh, beating the other team's mascot and stuff like that. So it's a very, very interesting traditions that they have to offer. And you know, this fan base is going to be hyped to play Kent state back at a hundred percent capacity. Yeah, no doubt. So I didn't realize the, I, I had heard of the midnight yells before. I didn't realize the extent to which it exists. I didn't realize there's 60,000 people they pack in there. Oh that's yeah. They, they pack, they pack the stadium for not even a game. I mean, that's, that's how much tradition is important to this university. So that is what the golden flashes will be walking into on Saturday night in college station, 8 PM kick national TV on ESPNU Kent state currently a 29 point underdog in this game. The total at this one, pretty high set at 66 and a half. The Aggies, obviously, you know, they're number six in the country and now expectations very, very high in college station. A lot of that due to the strength of the defense. But when you look at the other side of the ball, you know, you got a new starting quarterback in Haynes King. You got four new starters on the offensive line. I'm not sitting here saying that Kent State's going to win this game. Obviously, Texas A&M is number six in the country for a reason. But there are some whole, there are some question marks on the Aggies roster, especially on offense. And I do feel like 29 points in this game is a bit much. It does seem like that. I'm concerned about how, te- how Kent State's going to handle Isaiah Spiller and Texas A&M's run game. You have Isaiah Spiller, who had over 1,000 yards last year. And Isaiah Spiller's not just any running back. He's somebody who breaks tackles and sheds contact with great ability. And Kent State struggles with that last year. I mean, Jarrett Patterson is a similar running back to Isaiah Spiller in terms of break tackle ability. And you saw what Kent State did last year, allowing 408 yards and eight touchdowns to him. So I'm concerned about how they handle Isaiah Spiller and AM can mix it up. They have a secondary backslash receiver named Anaya Smith that also gets a lot of carries. So AM has, even though they're losing a quarterback and four linemen, the skill position players on offense are plentiful. You have those two guys. You have Chase Lane, who's a really fast receiver, and Caleb Chapman, who is a very large receiver, 6'5", coming off an injury. He helped them win that Florida game last year before that injury transpired which had actually transpired on a 51-yard touchdown catch 
like a sports center top 10 highlight play. So you have those guys back. Uh, tight end that could be a potential All-American, I think, in Jalen Weidermeyer. A&M just seems to produce great tight ends year after year from Martellus Bennett to to uh, Jay Sternberger. They've, they've had so many good tight ends there over the years. And then while Kent State, they did have – they ranked top 10 in pretty much every offensive category last year, passing offense, rushing offense, first in points per game with almost 50. Kent State's going to get some points on the board. I mean, this AM defense was second in rushing defense last year, and they have a lot of guys up front like DeMarvin Leal who are going to give Kent State's offensive line fits. But I still think the speed, I think Kent State can match AM in speed, but not in physicality. And I think the physicality is going to be what the difference is in the game. I still think AM can get up three or four, Kent State can still get three or four touchdowns on them just due to. Dustin Crum's ability to play quarterback, his ability to read defensive ends when running options, his ability to fire off quick passes and the speed of Kent State's receivers. But overall, AM's offense is going to score points just due to the state of Kent State's defense. And their new quarterback, Haynes King, is probably going to get adjusted in the middle of this game. And the Aggies, I put in my preview a 45 to 27 win. Let me, how fair do you think that sounds? Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I agree with the Kent I agree with 27 sounds right to Kent State for Kent State. I I hate to say it. I feel like Texas, I could see Texas A&M breaking 50 in this game. You know, I could, I feel like it's to be like a 51-28, something like that. I feel, I feel like that that feels right to me. That's that's one thing. I, I feel like uh, that that total, that 66 and a half, I feel like the, I, this game I could see easily going over that mm-hmm. total if, Penn, if Kent State's going to give you three touchdowns, four touchdowns. Here's one thing that I'm curious about, though, is that when you look back to the 2019 season for Kent State, right, when, you know, Woody Barrett's the starter to start the year and then Dustin Crum takes over for him in week two, Dustin Crum's second start of his career was at Auburn, and then a couple weeks later he started at Wisconsin – both of those games ended in blowouts, but that again, that was Dustin Crum at the very, very beginning of his starting tenure. Since then, and since Kent State has really hit their stride, starting at the end of that 2019 season and then moving forward into last year, they haven't faced a defense like this. And, you know, this is a team, they only gave up 92 yards a game last year on the ground, uh, only 21, only 22 points a game, roughly. So I'm very curious. I mean, this is going to be a big step up in competition for the Golden Flashes. And so, the thing that I will be very curious to see is that if Texas A&M does get up early or if they do, you know, you know, come, you know, if they're aggressive and come at Kent State early, I'll be curious to see how the Golden Flashes respond to that. Because, like I said, they haven't been tested like this in, in, in quite some time in terms of the level of talent that they're going up against. But none of all of that aside, I still I still do feel like their offense will figure it out. I just don't have a ton of faith. You mentioned the, the, the running attack for, for the Aggies. As much as we can talk about how we think gold, the Kent State's defense is going to be improved this year, which I think it will be, it's still a tall task to go into to College Station and, and slow this team down. So, yeah, I feel like high 40s, low 50s for AM feels right. And, you know, somewhere in the mid to high 20s feels right for, for Kent State. And, you know, if, if I was, uh, you know, if, if I was a betting man, if I was going to put some money on something this weekend, I feel like the over in this game is, is probably feels like a, like a safe one to me. I could be wrong, though. We'll see what happens. 
a really, really interesting matchup to start the year, though, for uh, for Kent State. And obviously, we're going to learn a lot about Kent State here over this first month of the season. They got Texas A&M on Saturday at Iowa in week three at Maryland in week four. So we're going to get two more chances to see Dustin Crum in this offense against power five competition. And I think that's something that I'm really, really looking forward to. Steve, we just ran through uh, 12 games, well, eight games and, you know, the four FCS games here in about an hour. Um, any final thoughts, any, any, you know, anything we didn't cover, anything that you're really looking forward to this weekend, even if it's outside of the Mac? Yes, th I think this weekend's slate of games is pretty stacked. I think we've discussed some of it before. Anytime you have Clemson and Georgia meeting on week one, yeah. that's just going to be an electric game. I think I'm really excited to see what DJ Uangalale is able to do at quarterback after he had, he had some pretty good games against Notre Dame and Boston college last year when Trevor Lawrence was out. So I think that Clemson Georgia games, one thing on my radar that I really want to see how that one pans out. Another game I'm really interested in is the Penn state Wisconsin kickoff and mm -hmm. see how both teams respond because both of those teams, I think, were among the most disappointing last year because it felt like they entered 2020 with national title hopes. Then the season got canceled. They had some opt-outs. Guys like Micah Parsons and Journey Brown were gone from Penn State, and Wisconsin had a lot of COVID issues. And then those teams never really found the right footing. So I kind of want to see how those teams start out in that game in Madison and which program has the upper hand this season. So that's one other game that I think is going to be really good this Saturday. And then uh, another one I just want to look at is the Texas versus Louisiana game, because I think uh, Louisiana it presents a pretty good challenge for Texas and being an alma mater of University of Texas. I kind of want to see how Steve Sarkeesian can do in his first game with his new starting quarterback in Hudson Card and how Billy Napier's veteran team uh, just can challenge that Longhorns bunch. Yeah, I agree. All, all great picks. One game that this is a very under radar, the game I, I'm weird. I love watching on like underdog teams and like, I love the teams that, you know, do more with less resources and stuff like that. A game that's very intriguing to me on Saturday, I'm going to be watching Oregon state at Purdue. I really like what Jonathan Smith has done over the last couple of years at Oregon state. The, the win loss record hasn't been obvious. I mean, they haven't made a bowl game, but they've outperformed expectations. And then Jeff Brom in in there in West Lafayette, it felt like a couple years ago, Purdue was really, really building something with Rondale Moore and some of the skill position players that they've had. Things seem to have fallen apart on him here over the last couple years. Purdue fans now seem to be getting a little bit um, impatient with Jeff Brom. A couple years ago, uh, he almost left for Louisville because of how well he had been doing at Purdue. And it seems like they've kind of lost all of that momentum. I'll be really curious to see uh, the, uh, the Beavers head into West Lafayette on Saturday night. Uh, Tristan Gebbia, the, the quarterback for the, the Beavers, I'm, I'm a big fan of. So that's an interesting one that I'll be looking forward to. Also looking forward to that Texas Tech-Houston game. Could be a lot of points in that game with, with uh, former or Oregon quarterback Tyler Schuff as the, uh, the starter under center for the Red Raiders now. A lot of good stuff, man. It's I Labor Day weekend is like the best weekend of the year for me. Call, we got college football for like five days straight from Thursday to Monday. It doesn't get any better than that, man. I have my schedule cleared on Saturday. I'm not going to do anything but sit on the couch. I know you're you're going to be in college. So what's your plan before you head to the stadium on Saturday for College Station? So I actually want to drive up there early in the morning and park at a Buffalo Wild Wings and sit there for the first slate of games 
and then I'll decide what to do for the afternoon games. But usually I park there with a first light of games. I'm kind of weird. I bring my laptop into restaurants a lot of times, like mm -hmm. on football Saturdays to display games that they aren't covering or to write if I need to yeah. write a recap or something. Uh, yes, I've written so many recaps in Buffalo Wild Wings uh, joints before. Not, not, a, not an ad, but I would gladly <laughs> sponsorship if needed. Yeah, so I'll probably do that. I said I'll have my eye on the 11 o'clock games, Penn State, Wisconsin, Michigan, Western Michigan, uh, Stanford, Kansas State's another intriguing one to me. Is I, I always enjoy watching David Shaw and that Stanford program. So those are some of the games I'll keep my eye on in the morning. Then uh, before the game, probably the game's a seven o'clock kickoff local time in Texas. I'll probably head to the stadium a little before five and I might see some of the evening games going on in the press box before before A&M and Kent State kick off. And I usually will keep tabs on other games like while I'm covering just to see what the scores are, yeah. uh, have a tweet deck going up to see what other writers are tweeting about the games and stuff. And then I, I'll watch them film after games end on late Saturday night and Sunday before the NFL games start. Great stuff, great stuff. It's a beautiful time of year, especially after last year. I am so excited for a full Saturday of college football here this weekend. Uh, gonna be a great season, guys. Thank you all for tuning in uh, for our week one preview here this week. Next week, obviously, we'll be back with a week one recap and a little preview of some of our week two games. Uh, for Steve Helwick, I am Zach Follador. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Mac Bandwagon. We'll see you again next week.